chapter 4, verse 1. When the entire nation was on the other side, Yahweh told Joshua, Select for yourself twelve men from the people, one per tribe. Instruct them to pick up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests stand firm, the priests stand firmly, and carry them over with you, and put them in the place where you camp tonight. Joshua summoned the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one per tribe, and Joshua told them, Go in front of the ark of Yahweh, your God, to the middle of the Jordan, and each of you is to put a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the Israelite tribes. The stone will be a reminder to you when your children ask someday, Why are these stones important to you? Tell them how the water of the Jordan stopped flowing before the Ark of the Covenant of the Yahweh, and when it, when it crossed the Jordan, the water of the Jordan stopped flowing. These stones will be a lasting memorial for the Israelites. These Levitical priests are standing in the water. Everybody's crossed over. And God says, I now want you to each guy, one from each tribe, 12, which doesn't count the Levites because they're holding the Ark of the Covenant, to go into the bottom of the river, which is now completely dry, and pick up a stone, a stone big enough that you're going to like have to heft it up on your shoulder. And they're to build this altar. And it's to be a memorial. Now, here's what's happening. First, in the book of Deuteronomy, God commanded the Israelites to constantly build memorials all the time to what God has done. And this is something we've kind of lost in modern-day America. Not all, not idols, not images, and like just memorials. And it's usually stones. And they were to build memorials all the time to remember what God has done because we typically forget really easily. And then he also instructed whenever these memorials are built, you're not allowed to take any tool or any hand to them. They are to be complete, they're to be rocks, uncut, unhewn, and stacked up. Even when they built their altars, the pagans um, cut their stones and built an altar. The Israelites were not allowed. They were just to stack their rocks. And the reason is, the minute we start putting our hand to something, it becomes our creativity, our work. And we tend to look at it in pride. And there's nothing wrong with building something and having a sense of satisfaction in that, but not when you're trying to remember what God has done. And then you begin to blur the line between your accomplishment and God's accomplishment. And we know how easily we go into idolatry and self-glorification. God did not allow them to hew it at all with their own hands. They were to take his rocks that he formed in creation, stack them up completely untouched. And unless you're doing some like balancing rock act, there's not really much pride you can have in just taking 12 stones and stacking them. They stack them up and there to be a memorial and a reminder for all generations of what God has done. But here's what's interesting. Every single time you do something, if you do something like that in your house, like you hang pictures and you hang art, how long does it take before you just kind of really stop looking at that? Think about all the decorations you put in the house and you don't even really look at those pictures that much. It may be every once in a while, but most every single day in the mundane routine, you don't even notice that stuff. It just becomes a background in your house which means even a memorial doesn't do anything to help us remember. But this is why the book of Deuteronomy kept saying, when your children ask. And this is the beauty of children. They never stop asking questions. <laughs> and what can be annoying is also an opportunity for teaching. And a lot of times you like forget to teach your kids something and you forget that memory or you forget that memorial is even there. But when your kids are like, why is that there? 
then you're like, oh, yeah. And what it does is it gives you an opportunity to teach your children that you might have not done because you were too busy. At the same time, it's an opportunity for you to be reminded of what that memorial stands for, to refresh it in your mind. And so over and over, God says this. And then when the grandchildren come and the cousins come or other people come, it's a constant, why is that there? Why is it there? Why is it there? And then in the festivals, God worked into the festivals that they did every year that they were to then tell their children why they do their festivals. Why, why is it that we do this ritual this way? And God constantly tells them to teach your children when you wake up, when you lie down, when you walk along the path, when you eat and that kind of stuff of what these things are. And so he uses the curiosity of the children and get the knowledge and the experience of the children and the memorial brings the two together for a teachable moment and a memory. And this is what God is having them do. And I really strongly encourage you to have memorials in your house and whatever it is, something that you haven't created, but something that reminds you of what God has done. And so these memorials become that. And so he tells them, dear children are going to ask for generations to come. You're going to remind them. Now, he goes through this complex repetition thing. He keeps repeating it over and over again. And when you get done with the repetition, it kind of comes down to the fact that they're actually end up taking 24 stones. And they're going to take 12 stones out of the river, and they're going to take them up to Gilgah and build a memorial there. But they're also going to take 12 other stones and build an altar in the middle of the river. And when the river goes back to flowing after the Levitical priests step out, there will be this giant rock memorial sticking out of the middle of the river. And when the evidence is there's no way that you could get into a bottom of a river why it was flowing like that and carry 24 stones out, let alone stack them up on a hill and stack some in the middle of a river why the water's pushing on them unless that river had dried up. And so not only does it become a memorial to what God has done, but it becomes a scientific evidence that that river really truly did dry up. And so God is having them build a memorial to remember this. Do those memorials still exist? No. It's been 3,000 years by now. Now, the time that this author is writing, which is somewhere in the time period of the kings, what we do know is that these authors, a lot of authors kind of wrote and wrote a bunch of different stories, and then some kind of an editor um, brought all these stories together and edited them into one kind of thing. And by the time that editor comes along, that's probably more likely during the time of Samuel. And so, and it says things like, they're there to this day. And so we know at that time of Samuel and Saul and David and Solomon, they're still standing. But when we get to the book of Kings, they go into just absolute depravity that a lot of these memorials just get lost in wars and and evil kings and queens who seek them out to actually destroy them intentionally to erase Yahweh and that kind of stuff so yeah they eventually get taken away during that time period and then of course when the Assyrians come in they destroy and the Babylonians destroy anything that's left over verse 8 the Israelites did just as Joshua commanded they picked up the 12 stones according to the number of the Israelite tribes from the middle of the Jordan, and Yahweh had instructed Joshua. They carried them over with them to the camp and put them there. And Joshua also set up the 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan in the very place where the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they remained there to this very day. 
God emphasizes their obedience in two ways. One, he says they did just as God commanded. Now, if it was you and I writing this story, we would have stopped there and moved on because we only have so many words per paragraph for our news article. But for the Bible, it repeats it. It says they did just as did, and then da 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 And there's a part of us who thinks that's really kind of repetitious. Skip, skip, skip. There's another part of us who thinks, wow, when paper is really expensive and they could have written a lot more in the Bible and yet they didn't and they chose to repeat all this, the point is why? And what God is trying to really emphasize is they really did do everything that God commanded. This repetition is what is a phrase that scholars call command compliance. And when the Bible specifically repeats all over again, Everything, I mean, like the book of Exodus, you read really detailed instructions of how to build a tabernacle, and then it gives you another 10 chapters of really detailed instructions of how they built the tabernacle. And you're like, this is exactly the same thing practically. Yes, that's the whole point. The point is to let you know that when they executed it, they executed it to every detail of what God commanded. So there is no room to say, yeah, but. And that's what God's trying. And that what he's doing is he's emphasizing their faithfulness. And without hesitation, they obeyed God to the letter of his commands and in every single detail. And we talked about this in the book of Leviticus, especially for non-detailed people. When you're able to get every detail right of what somebody wants, that is an incredible way of saying, I love you. When you have a birthday party for them and you get every detail, their favorite fruit, their favorite color balloons, their favorite park, their favorite whatever, and you get every little detail right, paying attention to details is an incredible way of saying I love you. And so the details are not so important as they have to be this way or the whole universe falls apart, but they're important in that they're really saying we care about what you want, God. And so they got every detail right. Verse 10, Now the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant were standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything that Yahweh had commanded Joshua to tell the people was accomplished. In accordance with all that Moses had commanded, Joshua and the people went across quickly. And when all the people had finished crossing the Ark, crossing the ark of Yahweh, and the priests crossed as the people looked on, the Reubenites, Gads, and half a tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed for battle ahead of the Israelites, just as Moses instructed them, making sure that you know that they're faithful too. About 40,000 battle-ready troops, which could be also 40 regiments of battle-ready troops, passed Yahweh to fight on the plains of Jericho. That day Yahweh brought honor to Joshua before all of Israel. They respected him all his life, just as they had respected Moses. This is faithfulness. Faithfulness to God's leader, faithfulness to God, obedience. Now notice that the actual crossing of the Red Sea was very brief. Or sorry, the Jordan River was very brief. But the commemoration of it all was very long. And what God is trying to emphasize is that what's more important to him is not the event itself, but that they remember what he did. Because events are moments and memories. But the only way to keep that event alive is by remembering it. And that what God, the whole point of Deuteronomy was first, that God made a covenant and did all this because he loves you and he wants you to love him in return. And the second point in Deuteronomy was the best way to remember God, to love God is to remember him. To remember who he is, to remember his faithfulness, to remember what he's done. 
And what God is emphasizing more than anything is their faithfulness to remember him. And so this is the real-life application of Deuteronomy. Mutual, reciprocal love demonstrated in remembrance, keeping memories alive of what God has done and retelling those stories over and over again. And this is what they're doing. So you would say that the uh, Jerichoans, or whatever you would call them, witnessed this? Oh, yeah. They're watching everything. You have to remember, there's not many places to go. And we're, we're experiencing with the, the idea of refugees. Like, if you take a massive population and they leave their home, not many people want them. And so, there's yeah, there's not many places to go. You're kind of just hoping that maybe in the last minute your God will step in and stop this Yahweh. And that's really all they have. Verse 15, Yahweh told Joshua, instruct the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant laws to come up from the Jordan. So Joshua instructed the priests, come up from the Jordan. And the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant Yahweh came up in the middle of the Jordan. And they set foot in the dry land, and the water of the Jordan immediately began to flow again and returned to the flood stage. The people went up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and camped in Gilgah on the eastern border of Jericho. Now Joshua set up in Gilgah the twelve stones they had taken from the Jordan. He told the Israelites, And when your children someday ask your fathers, once again repeating the, make sure you tell your children, what do these stones represent? Explain to your children, Israel crossed the Jordan from dry ground, for Yahweh your God dried up the water of the Jordan before you while you crossed it. It was just as Yahweh your God dried up the Red Sea before us while we crossed. He has done this so all the nations of the earth might recognize Yahweh's power so you might always obey Yahweh your God. Now here is interesting because he adds, he also did this so all the other nations will be reminded of who God is and what he does. It wasn't just for them, it was also for the other nations. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then when the Amorite kings on the west side of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along with the seacoast heard how Yahweh had dried up the water of the Jordan before the Israelites, while they were crossed, they lost their courage and could not even breathe for the fear of the Israelites. Now, a lot of your translators probably said they were melting in fear. Okay? They were melting in fear. And that's the second time we've seen that. Rahab said, everybody is melting in fear of what you have done. And now they come in and they see another miracle and they're like, oh my gosh, we're really melting in fear now. And that gets repeated. And that's important to remember because there's going to be a twist on that in later chapters. Chapter 5, verse 2. Now we're dealing with the circumcision. At that time, Yahweh told Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites once again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites on the hill of foreskins. This is why Joshua had to circumcise them. All the men old enough to fight when they left Egypt died on the journey through the desert after they left Egypt. Now all the men who left them were circumcised, but all the sons born on the journey through the desert after they left Egypt were uncircumcised. Indeed, for 40 years the Israelites traveled through the desert until the men old enough to fight when they had left Egypt. The ones who had disobeyed Yahweh died off. For Yahweh had a sworn a solemn oath to them that he would not let them see the land he had sworn an oath to give them, a land rich in milk and honey. He replaced them with the sons whom Joshua circumcised. They were uncircumcised. Their fathers had not circumcised them along the way. When all the men had been circumcised, they stayed there in the camp until they had healed. 
And Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I have taken away the disgrace of Egypt from you. So that place is called Gilgah even to this day. Going back to chapter 17 of Genesis, God makes an Abrahamic covenant with Abraham in chapter 15. And in chapter 17, he says, This is to be the sign of that covenant. You are to circumcise every single male. Now, the reason he's doing this is because God's promise is that he would give them descendants and an everlasting seed, children. And that male organ is responsible for producing children. So he's marking with his covenant the very thing that's going to produce children. At the same time, he's also making the point that you are now a new people. And the the male and female genitalia are the only organs that produce both toxic waste and life. And so what he's saying is, if you're not marked by God, you will produce waste, death. But if you are marked by God, then you'll produce life. And so this became a symbol of a new life, a new covenant they had with God, where they could actually experience and produce life for an eternity of descendants, rather than the death that they had been experiencing under their pagan gods. God made it very clear that anybody who does not cut off that skin, will be cut off from his covenant. And to be cut off from God's covenant means eternal death. Physical death in the First Testament, which we now know leads to eternal death. Um, Not that all physical death does, but that particular one. And so God took this so seriously that when Moses hadn't even circumcised his own child, right before he was going into Egypt to lead the ten plagues in the Exodus, God struck Moses with a disease that almost killed him because Moses was about ready to lead the chosen people of Israel out of Egypt, and he hadn't even circumcised his own son and made him part of the covenant of God. And so God struck him down, and when Moses' wife finally circumcised the kid because Moses was too sick and dying to do it, the, the plague was taken from Moses. And so God took this very seriously. And so this says something. The older generation was so disobedient and so ungodly that not only did they not believe that they could take the land, but they refused to make their own kids a part of the covenant. This is like you refusing to ever take your kid to church, tell them about Christ, and introduce them to the gospel message. And that's the significance of what they just did. And so God says, now notice he doesn't punish the children. But he does say, but this has to happen. Now, at the same time, God commanded circumcision to happen on the eighth day of the kid's life. And that's amazing. Because way before science discovered this in the 1900s, we now know that kids can't clot blood until the eighth day. They don't produce enough vitamin K and potassium to clot until about um, the eighth day of their life. And the nerve endings don't bundle in that area until the ninth day. So the eighth day is the only day that they can clot and not feel pain. Now, if you've had a boy and they got circumcised before the eighth day, it's because the doctor gave them an injection of vitamin K or wiped some salve on their eyelids to absorb it that way. But they don't have that in the ancient world. When you become an adult, it's incredibly painful. And it cripples you for weeks. Maybe at least a week. And here's what's interesting. Why not circumcise them on the other side of the river where they're safe? Yet God takes them into enemy territory and puts them right outside of a military fort 
and circumcises every single warrior so they're completely crippled and in pain for at least a week. You think, God, that was kind of not strategic. I would have done it the other way, right? But why? Yes. To show them it doesn't, this isn't about you and your strength and your military might and your defenses. I can bring you right to the doorstep of the enemy, right in their enemy territory. And I have struck them with such fear of who I am, not you. They're not afraid because of your military strength. They keep saying they're afraid because of the Red Sea crossing and the plagues and the Jordan River crossing and the defeat of Sihon and Og. Not military might. God has brought them there and he circumcises them. One, because they have to if they're going to be God's covenant people used by him. And two, to show I can take care of you. And it's so unvinful that it just says they were circumcised and they need time to heal. And it doesn't mention anything about enemies. It doesn't mention anything about threats or fears because it's a non-issue. And this is what God, and God does this a lot of times with us. A lot of times he doesn't prepare you until you're there. And because he's saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me to take care of you even when you're already there? Now, I don't recommend you not getting prepared until you're there unless God has done something like that. But that doesn't mean you're like, oh, I'm just going to go in willy-nilly with the seat of my pants. That's not wise. So this is what God does. Now, it's called Gilgah. And he specifically says that they remove the foreskin. And there's a play on words here because it's called the Hill of Foreskins, which is an interesting name for a hill. And that Gilgah means to roll away. And so basically they rolled away the skin off at the place that God rolled away their disgrace and sin in their past lives. He's doing this play on words there that both what is happening physically to them is a symbol of what he's doing spiritually in their lives by removing that past old life and bringing them into a new life with him. And that's the play on this word. And every time they go to Gilgah, they'll be reminded that God there removed and rolled away their past life of sin and disgrace and brought them into a new covenant relationship. And so these names, the names of these cities are often memorials as well to what God has done. Which means maybe we should be naming buildings and stuff more after things that God has done rather than pastors and elders and that kind of stuff. What a greater testament than to name a building or something after an event of what God did there rather than some guy. Now, I'm not demeaning the, 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 the faith of those people or their, the need to remember them, but if you want a memorial, it should be about God. So the Israelites camped at Gilgah, verse 10, and celebrated the Passover in the evening of the 14th day of the month on the plains of Jericho, and they ate some of the produce of the land that day after Passover, including unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped appearing that day that they ate some of the produce of the land, and the Israelites never ate manna again. It just happens to be that the day that they left Egypt was the day after Passover. And now, the day that they've entered the Promised Land is Passover, or at least a week later. And so they celebrate Passover, which is a reminder of God passing over them and not killing them for their sins, but a lamb dying in their place. But what's interesting is they've been eating the bread that has been appearing from God for the last 40 years. And now it just dried up. Why? Because it says that they ate the 
produce of the land. Now, remember I told you this idea of the promised land. They are entering in through the eastern gate. So the Dead Sea and the Jordan River form the pillars to the eastern gate of the Jordan River. And they're entering the promised land, which is a recreation of the garden and a recreation of the tabernacle. And now that they've entered the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, an abundance of milk and honey and wine and figs and all kinds of stuff. That's the metaphor. They now can eat the land that God has produced for them. And so where they weren't in the land, now they're in the land and God is beginning to bless the land like he did in the garden. And the idea of this is God has been faithful to bring them to the promised land to produce food for them from the land. They don't need the man anymore because this is far greater now a testament to God. And so that little phrase there is a huge emphasis on God has been faithful to all of his promises.